The Book Nook on WYSO is presented by the Greene County Public Library with additional support from Clark County Public Library, Dayton Metro Library, Washington Centerville Public Library, and Wright Memorial Public Library. Hello, welcome to the Book Nook on WYSO. I'm Vic McCunis, and it's my pleasure to welcome to the studio today John Keyswetter. He has published a book called Joe Nuxhall, The Old Left-Hander and Me, My Conversations with Joe Nuxhall about the Reds, baseball, and broadcasting. Welcome to the studio. Thank you, Vic. This is a, a love story in a way, isn't it? Uh, your love of baseball and your love of, of a really an amazing guy. Who they he, called Nuxy, and I see it according to your hat, you, you've got you've got a Nuxy hat on yeah. today. This this was the patch that they the players wore in uh, 2008 all year the year after he died. But yeah, yeah I I'm uh, I, I was eight years old when the Reds won, went to the World Series in 1961. In 1962, my Reds had the same record. They're 13 games over 500 in July, but they're but they're. Uh, in fourth place, buried in fourth place. And they bring up this young pitcher called uh, Joe Nuxall to pitch. And being nine years old, I just thought he was some young young stud pitcher like Maloney or or O'Toole who came up through the minors. And then my dad said, no, 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 you you, you got to know about Joe Nuxall. And told me about 1944, being the youngest player ever. Then he went to the minor leagues for seven years and came back to the Reds. You know that that first time in 1944, he only got two outs. He gave up five runs on, on uh, five walks, two hits, a wild pitch. And when he came came back in '52, a writer said, "You know, it only took Nuxall eight years to get that third out." So, so he, he was 15 years old. Yes, and still the youngest player ever to play in the majors. Exactly, and I ironically, when I was writing the book. There was a, a a player for for the old Philadelphia Athletics named Carl Scheib, who had died the previ- who died in like 2019, and he was the youngest before Nux, and he lived for like 75 years after that. But it wasn't for Nux coming along; he would have been heralded as the youngest player. But like nine months later, Nux came along and pitched for the Reds. And um, so it was just one of those oddities that I was able to track down for the book. He's like Buzz Aldrin. Sorry, you were second. We don't care. <laughs> My guest is John Keysweater. Who was Joe Nuxhall? I'm sure we've got one or two listeners out there who have never heard of him. Well, Joe Nuxhall had had like a 63-year career with the Reds. And the first part was being the youngest pitcher ever in 1944, pitched a couple of days after D-Day, when the major league rosters had were depleted because of servicemen going off to the war. And he pitched. He was an all-star twice in the 50s and pitched all the way to 1967 and retired and joined the Reds broadcast booth. And for 40 years, he was on radio, probably best known for 31 years, partnered with Marty Brenneman, the Hall of Famer, as Marty and Joe on the radio and even when, when the Reds were good, Marty and Joe were there in the Big Red Machine. And when they were bad in the 80s, we listened to Marty and Joe having fun, um, as it, which made it fun, even though the, the Reds stunk, kind of like now. Ouch. And when the Reds were bad, they got better. 
they they had to fill the time. They had to talk about their tomato plants. They had to talk about their families. They they talked about all this stuff, and and you felt like you were sitting there on the couch with them watching the game. And, and also at that time, until until really about uh, probably about fifteen years ago, uh, when Channel Five had the rights for the Reds, there was only like forty five. Reds games on TV a year, and 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 then some on the game of the week on Saturday. There was no ESPN. There, I guess there was a Sunday night game at that point. So if you wanted to follow the Reds daily, you listened to Marty and Joe, and you listened to the pregame show for for Joe's interview or or Marty filling you in on the on the player moves and all. And it was the it was a way to keep up with the team. That uh, you know today there's the internet. There's you know nine different ways to watch the Reds on cable and streaming services and everything else. But it was a real centralized way and a real intimate way. You know, people say pictures are better on the radio. I grew up listening to baseball games on the radio. We, we didn't have a, a major league team anywhere near us, so we listened to those broadcasts from, from the big clear channel stations. And there's nothing like it. I mean, you could watch the game of the week on NBC with Tony Kubek and Joe Garagiola, but it wasn't the same to, to hear them on the radio, to hear them talking about the game, to, to fill your head with imagination. And you talk about in the book how when Marty Brenneman was growing up in Virginia, he used to listen to a guy in Brooklyn who he thought was doing the games when he was really doing the same thing that Ronald Dutch Reagan used to do in Des Moines on WHO when he would read a a, a printout coming out from the Chicago Cubs, and he would recreate the game, and it sounded like the, you were really listening to the game, the imagination of it. They would have the crowd noise. They would have everything. There's nothing like listening to baseball on the radio. No, it, it, and, and you think it's it's one-on-one with you, and, and, and you see the pictures in your head. And, uh, yeah, Marty listened to a guy by the name of Nat Albright, who was in actually suburban D.C. He thought he was up in Brooklyn at the game. And that was one of his early influences. And I, I did like you, in addition to listen to the Reds here, but, you know, here in the Cincinnati-Dayton area, you can get uh, the, the Cubs, you could get the Cardinals. Uh, you At that point, you get Detroit coming in on, on WJR. You could get uh, the, the Atlanta games. And, and I would even get the Houston Astros on a state. WWL in New Orleans was carrying the Astros. So I could and listen to Harry Carey, Jack Buck doing the Cardinals and I can still get the Cubs at night uh, and hear Pat Hughes' game. So it's 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 great fun. It's just it's something I hope never goes away. My guest is John Keysweater. His book is Joe Nuxhall, the old left-hander in me. My conversations with Joe Nuxhall about the Reds, baseball, and broadcasting. And uh, Joe used to give speeches, and he'd tell these great stories. And he published a book, and. None of, none of those great stories were in the book. No, I, I, he, I, we moved, my wife and I moved to Fairfield in 1986. We had been living in Cincinnati. I worked for the Enquirer. She worked for the Hamilton Journal uh, for a long time, which is now the Journal News, a Cox paper. And um, so he, he would speak to my KSC every January before spring training, before he went to and he'd tell these great stories. And it was like he'd start with a, like five minutes telling you how the Reds are going to do his optimistic, rosy, optimistic way of what. And then somebody would raise their hand and said, tell us about the old days. And he'd start telling stories about Kozuski, Wally Post, Pete Rose, Gaylord Perry, 
uh, Billy Martin. I mean, just and it was like Joe unplugged. It, it it would go anywhere from an hour and a half to two hours, no notes at all, just all off the. T- and so, when I became I became TV columnist for the Enquirer, which I did for about thirty years, when I'd have to interview Joe for a story. I'd always pop in a cassette tape, and then I'd say, hey, Joe, tell me about the time you fell on your butt when you're trying to field the bunts at Wrigley Field back in the 50s, or, or tell me that story about the spitball duel between Gaylord Perry and Jim Maloney back in the 60s. And so I had some of these that I had on tape that I transcribed, and then his book came out, and it was largely about how a 15-year-old kid got the pitch in the majors, and then it kind of hopscotched around his career. And, and I th- thought, okay, I got these great stories. They ought to be preserved and prized and passed down to the next. So that's the first chapter. And then I did a, a serious look at him as a pitcher, two-time All-Star, retired from the Reds as the all-time strikeout leader. Uh, as a, He always would say, swing the bat, you're dangerous. And as a hitter, he um, hit 15 home runs. And um, so I, I kind of gave him his due as, as a hitter. And, and hitting with particularly with the 1956 Reds when they tied the National League record for most home runs. That was Frank Robinson's rookie year and Wally Post and Ted Kozuski and Gus Bell and 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 Nux hit two of them. So um, it was just kind of fun to put together. That was before the worst trade in Reds history. My guess is John Keysweater, and we're talking about Joe Nuxhall. Joe really does get short shrift uh, as far as his playing ability, um, this appearance when he was 15 really kind of set him back. He didn't really get a chance to pitch in the majors. He was in the minors for, what, seven years after that? And and then when he finally did come back, he had a little problem with his temper. (laughs) Yeah, yeah, just a little bit. Uh, I mean, he was uh, in – there was a – the story he loved to tell was he he, he walked a, a batter in the, playing the Cubs and it was after a rains delay, and uh, the next guy bunts and he scrambles down to pick up the ball and falls on his butt, and and the, so the, what does the next batter do? He bunts and he scrambles down to pick up the ball and falls on his butt. So all of a sudden he's got the bases loaded and, and and Ernie banks up who doubles in a couple of runs. The next guy singles, and Bertie Tebbets comes out to take him out and he's livid at this point, and he tries to tear up his glove and throw it in the stands. He scattered the bats, he scattered the batting helmets, and just made a spectacle of it. But then he told me that when he got to the clubhouse back under the stadium at, at, at Wrigley Field, back then the, the batting helmets came in a box that was about six foot long and a foot square, and he kicked it, and it got stuck on his cleats. So he's walking around the clubhouse with this big box, and he had to get the clubhouse boy to take it off. And he said later, he says, you know, I did all this, and it took him a long time Till he was in in the 1960s when he was in his mid 30s, that he you know to curb his temper, keep his focus, and and be, and actually he was an all star in 55 and 56, and then in 1963, he was 15 and eight with like a 261 ERA, 14 complete games. So he had these two great years, like eight years apart. But it was when he actually was traded to Kansas City in 61 released by Kansas City, went to spring training with Baltimore and released, then picked up by the Los Angeles Angels, who released him after five games, and he was at the bottom. 33 years old, he could have just quit going back to Hamilton, but instead he went to the minors, regained his control, controlled his temper, and came back up and and, uh, had five great years for the Reds before he retired. 
In case you're just tuning in, you're listening to The Book Nook on WYSO, community-owned public radio for curious listeners. My guest on the program in studio today is John Keyswider, and we're talking about his book, Joe Nuxhall, The Old Left-Hander and Me, my conversations with Joe Nuxhall about the Reds, baseball, and broadcasting. And we'll continue our conversation right after this. You're listening to The Book Nook on WYSO, and if you're a fan of the Cincinnati Reds or you love baseball, you are not going to want to miss the rest of my interview today with John Keysweater because we're talking about Joe Nuxhall, the old left-hander and me, my conversations with Joe Nuxhall about the Reds baseball and broadcasting. And he came back, as you mentioned before the break, and reinvented himself. He got control of his temper. He became more of a pitcher. This is a guy who, who was a power pitcher early on, like a lot of pitchers. And he became more of a finesse pitcher, I'm guessing. And he always had a good curveball, right? Right. And, and, the, and he still kept pitching, right? He never stopped pitching. For, for how many years after he retired from baseball, he never stopped? At, at least 20. It, yes. I, I make the point to people that that you watch a TV game and you, and you see uh, – uh, Oral Hershiser, you might have seen Bob Gibson, Jim Palmer, I mean, even the legendary Wade Hoyt and Dizzy Dean all retired to the broadcast booth. They didn't keep pitching. Uh, Joe retired. He actually went to the spring training in 67 to try to make the team, but he only wanted to make it as a starter because he, he just couldn't get up and down in the bullpen. And he looked around, and there's Gary Nolan, 18-year-old kid. Uh, also, Johnny Bench was 18-year-olds in the, in the in the clubhouse. So he decided to retire to the booth, but the next day he pitched batting practice. And he pitched batting practice um, from 67 to about 87 or 88. It's not exactly clear when, but so throughout the whole Big Red Machine, he would be down there pitching. And both Johnny Bench and George Foster told me that to have a former big league pitcher and a left-hander uh-huh. pitching batting practice, and it wasn't the same speed, but they could catch the arm angle and the uh, and the motion, and and to get their timing, and and that um, they both said they loved to take batting practice from. Him. And Ben said, you know, occasionally he'd throw in a little slider, a little a breaking pitch, so the batters had to be awake during batting practice. It wasn't just you know like hitting them off a tee. And he was a real secret weapon, you know, particularly when the Reds are going to be facing Jerry Kuzman or Randy Jones or Steve Carlton, a tough lefty. He he didn't have their same stuff, but at least they could see the arm angle. And be prepared for the lefty. And after he get done pitching, batting practice, it was time for a meal. And his best buddy would take good care of him. And, and Nuxie's diet w- was very impressive. He, he liked his beer. He never drank beer in the booth, by the way. Yeah. But he liked his beer. And he also liked some... Pretty stinky food. Braunschweiger or liverwurst. And... Uh, hard-boiled eggs. I mean, uh, Jeff Brantley told me when Jeff was with the team in the 90s and Joe would do the star of the game <laughs> and because uh, Joe would finish the seventh inning, he went down to the clubhouse, he'd get a beer and he'd get a, you know, Braunschweiger sandwich or something and he'd be eating it on the air, breathing on, on Brantley. He said, hey, in a break at once, he said, you want a bite? He said, no, 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 no way at all. All right. Let's talk about his broadcast career because it's really impressive. And, and the whole chemistry between Marty Brenneman and, and Joe Nuxhall? It, it was it, it was uh, very natural. I mean, it's, it's, 
Joe, Joe went to the booth in 67 with a guy named Jim McIntyre. And when the beer rights changed after the 70 World Series, uh, Stroh's bought the rights and they wanted a new announcer. So they brought in Al Michaels, 26 years old from Hawaii, never done a major league game. And, and Joe had to kind of teach him the ropes, this young guy. Three years later, Michaels gets his like pay tripled to go to the Giants. And they hired this young guy, Marty Brenneman, no major league experience. And again, Joe had to kind of teach him the ropes and, and train him. And from that, they became just very good friends. And, and this relationship was, you know, that you had Marty, the college-trained professional announcer. I, I joke in the book that he would lead the league each year in hyphenated descriptions of people. And then there was Joe, who, who sometimes could get confused. He was more like your dad or your uncle calling the game. And occasionally there, there'd be a fly ball to left, right, center field. Uh, <laughs> and um, and so you, it was it was Big Joe and his little buddy, and um, they were, um, and, and kind of the tone was set from their very first, the second game of spring training, the second game of spring training was uh, the Reds trained in Al Michaels Al Al Lopez Field in Tampa, Florida. And they did their first game was a road game in the in the spring of '74. And the second game, it's in Al, Al Lopez Field. And Marty opens a broadcast by by welcoming the the listeners to uh, welcome to Al Michaels Field. And Joe about fell out of his chair. And at a commercial break, said, "I can't believe it. We haven't even started the season yet. You've I've got material for the banquet circuit." <laughs> and, and then. In in the eight, you know, so they did all the big red machine games together, and and Joe was you know the former player who, when he was in the dugout as a player, and somebody would hit a towering fly ball, he'd he'd be yelling, "Get out of here! Get out of here!" to get the ball to clear the wall, and he carried it over in the booth that you can in the background if there's a, a long fly ball, but that wasn't a Marty and Joe thing. I, I've the Reds made record albums of their highlights in seventy in seventy two. Uh, so he did those with Al Michaels. And in the background, you could hear <laughs> with Al Michaels saying, you know, get out of here, get uh-huh. out of here, get out of here. So uh, the two of them had just this great relationship. When the team was bad in the mid-'80s, Kroger became a TV sponsor, and Kroger did ads. Instead of using a player, they did TV ads with Marty and Joe. So that kind of elevated them to, like, uh, pop cultural icons in the Cincinnati-Dayton market that – that they were just not Marty and Joe on the radio, but they're Marty and Joe, this pretty funny comedy team for as well as the commercials were scripted. These two guys worked together all these years, and there were ups and downs. There were some rocky moments, and the chemistry was so important, having the two of them together in the same place. And um, the Reds made mistakes as far as dealing with this. At one point, they split them up, and it just didn't work, did it? Yeah, Channel 5 uh, had the TV rights, and they thought, oh, we're going to get Marty and Joe on the TV. But what they did is they had Marty was somebody um, on TV, and Joe was solo on the radio. And then they flipped, so Joe would be on TV, I think with Johnny Bench at the time, Steve Fiziak a little bit, and Marty was solo. But So you get Joe six innings of solo was pretty tough. Uh, and so the next year, because it was a two-year deal, the, uh, Annie McWilliams, who was a WLW sportscaster, was brought into radio just to kind of give knock somebody to talk to, so he didn't have to to go solo. But the the, the two of their the two of them together, and and the chapter I'm most proud of was was I called it pranks for the memories. We thought they were fun to listen to on the air, 
But off the air, they were pulling gags and usually Marty on Joe of pulling these pranks on that, that the listener didn't have a clue what was going on, but they were having a great time. Well, you could probably tell if suddenly Joe shut up that something was going on. If, if Joe couldn't talk, there was something that just absolutely made him speechless. And, and I think the funniest one is, is the one, I think they were in San Francisco? They were in San Francisco in the late 70s. I think it was 78. And um, the the engineer, you have to understand, when, when baseball radio teams travel, they don't take their local engineer with them. So that when they go to Candlestick or Dodger Stadium or whatever, the, the visiting team provides the engineer. And the engineer in Candlestick back then was Mark Marquard, who was quite the prankster. So one day he brings in a, a, a VHS machine, back in the days when they're about the size of a dresser drawer or a big suitcase, and wires it up to the monitor in the booth. And he only he and and Marty and a Cincinnati sports writer knew that something was coming, but they didn't know what. So anyway, finally in the seventh inning, when Joe's doing the seventh innings, because Joe would do the second and the third, and then uh, the third and the fourth, and then the seventh, Joe Morgan gets on first base, and he breaks to steal second. And it's a bang-bang play, and the umpire calls Joe out, and he's convinced he's safe, and he popped up and got right in the face of the umpire. And Sparky bolts out of the dugout and runs up to the, to try to separate him so his second baseman wouldn't get pitched. And at that point, Joe looks down at the TV to see the replay of the stolen base, and the engineer hits play. So instead of seeing Morgan slide into second base, he's watching a pornographic movie called Deep Throat. <laughs> and and the, the the air is dead air, silence, because Joe's supposed to be calling what's going on and always doing his point to the monitor and giving the elbow to Marty, pointing at it, because Joe thinks that, that this X-rated movie is being seen on the entire Cincinnati TV network for Cincinnati and all the Midwest stations that it's on. And... Uh, and Marty said he about broke my rib. He's he's putting on me so hard and, and keeps on pointing to the whole thing. <laughs> That's quite the elaborate practical joke. Uh, my guest is John Keysweater. We're talking about Joe Nuxhall, the old left-hander and me, my conversations with Joe Nuxhall about the Reds, baseball, and broadcasting. They were there for Pete Rose breaking the hits record. They were there for Johnny Bench's last at bat. And Joe was at the mic when when uh, Johnny hit his last home run, and and, and and you know, oh my God, I can't believe it! This is amazing. You couldn't write something like this. And then afterwards, uh, Joe did his post game star of the game interview with Johnny at home plate, sitting on stools so that everybody in the stands could see it. Uh, Tom Seaver's no hitter, uh, Tom Browning's perfect game. Um, all these great moments in history, and, and in 1990, um, because it used to be in the 70s when the Reds were in the World Series, uh, the network had the radio rights. But in, in 1990, the local radio team was able to do the games as well. So Marty and Joe could do all the playoff games. They did the World Series games. And in a Game 2, when Billy Bates was on base in the 10th, and Joe Oliver hit one down the third baseline, and, it's, and he goes, it's fair, baseball, and... And Billy Bates scores, and, and they win. I, I, I thought Nux might jump out of the booth. I mean, he was just that excited. Mm. And, and and that was the other thing, a great thing about him, just by listening. I mean, if you tune in the middle of the game, just by listening to their voice, you could tell if they were winning or losing because Marty was either upbeat and, 
and Joe was upbeat or or would be a little bit down because of the, the Reds would be behind. But um, and, and some of the fun things to, that I was able to track down was um, not even some of the the other moments. One was um, when when Jonathan Winters came in, in in 1977. He was back here in, in the area, grew up in the Dayton Springfield area, and was in the booth for a rain delay. And he told Joe he wanted to be interviewed as Whip Willis, a pitcher for the 1919 World Series. And it went on for four or five minutes, and Joe could barely keep a straight face. And at one point he said, well, did you have to, would, did you throw just all heat, or did you throw some breaking stuff? And, and Jonathan Winter goes, oh, no, says, everything I've got, he goes, everything i got is broke. I'm broke now. And he goes on this riff about about being broke because he had invested in used chickens. For, and so it just it was hilarious that 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 this went on, and then they interviewed John for seriously, but the the producer uh, Dave Armbruster said that when they would when the Reds would go into the Dodger Stadium, and if Jonathan Winters was in the house and would come to the clubhouse, Sparky would cancel batting practice so that. Uh-huh. Winners could just do it like a you know one man show in the clubhouse wow. for the team for a half hour or something like that. Well, years ago I had uh, Sparky Anderson on the show and uh, he talked about that greatest game ever, the sixth game where Carlton Fisk of the Red Sox waves the the ball out of the stadium, and of course they don't talk about game seven that much, but the game six, the famous iconic moment, and uh, Sparky said after that game that that Peter Rose came up to him and was all excited and was saying, wasn't that just the greatest game, even though they lost, wasn't that just the greatest game ever? What do you think? Was that the greatest game ever? Well, uh, actually, uh, my, my favorite story about that, it, 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 was a, it was a very good game. But uh, I, as TV critic, I, was, I would go to Los Angeles twice a year and we'd talk, see the new fall shows. And one year it was baseball, the Ken Burns nine-part nine thing about baseball. And he and in that show, that iconic image of, of Fisk at the plate waving the ball fair, you know, kind of jumping up and down on his tippy toes, uh, was seen more than once. And at the at the very end of the press conference, I went up to, to Ken Burns and says, uh, "Wasn't there one more game after that?" Right. <laughs> and he said, "Yeah, but with, you know, I don't like to think about that because he's cause a Boston he, guy. He's a Boston right, guy, right. A, a New Englander." Uh-huh. Um, so anyway, that was that was kind of fun to 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 uh, get to Ken Burns a little bit on that one. Well, there's so much in this book and, and so many funny things, and you can just picture it all. If anyone had ever listened to those two together, like I think it was uh, when Pete Rose broke the hits record, Marty was was talking about it, and suddenly Joe talked over him, and he kind of blew the big moment for him. There it is. There it is. There it is. Get down. Get down. And it was like years later that that Joe came up and apologized to Marty, and Marty said, "What are you talking about?" I said, "Oh, you know that that the, the the night of the Pete Rose hit. You know, and I ruined your big moment." And and Pete's and and Marty said, "It didn't matter to me. I mean, that was just Joe being Joe." And uh-huh. And uh, no need to apologize. It wasn't that it was, you know, but it's fun to listen to. And it's also fun if you're at the ballpark. And so many times you see that Pete Rose getting that hit, 4192. The audio is Marty and Joe. So they've stripped the audio off the radio and married it up to the video. And, and when they replay it on the scoreboard and, at, at Great American Ballpark, it's that hybrid 
TV video with you know Ken Wilson or whoever was on the TV at that time is long forgotten, mm-hmm. and it's just the iconic Marty and Joe call with that iconic moment we saw on TV. Because the radio is almost always better. My guest is John Keysweater, Joe Nuxhall, the old left-hander, and me. My conversations with Joe Nuxhall about the Reds baseball and broadcasting. He got to know Joe pretty well. Uh, you guys lived in the same town. You'd see him around town, wouldn't you? We'd see him at, you know, run into him at Kroger's, run into him. I mean, there'd be a store opening. Joe would be the celebrity and and that's autograph of baseball. Uh, he, there was the Joe Nuxhall driving range that actually his son, who was a elementary school phys ed teacher, ran, but it had a driving range and a little miniature golf. And when I would take my kids to play miniature golf, I'd pass up putt-putt to go there. And many times when we went into the little office business area, Joe's sitting in the in the corner with two other guys drinking coffee, just telling stories mm-hmm. and and uh, just having fun. So, yeah, I would see him a, a lot. And it was uh, it, the, the other true story. In Fairfield, this nice little town, um, at Christmas, Santa would come on the fire truck to City Hall and then light the big Christmas tree in front of City Hall. And then afterwards, he would go into City Council chambers and pass out candy cane, and, and Nux would be there. So there'd be Santa and Nux next to him, passing out candy kids and as, you know talking to the kids about their wishes. And and my two son, my two younger sons were there. And I, at one time, I kind of cut in behind Joe and got in behind him and leaned in and said, as a joke, I said, Joe, can I get you a beer? <laughs> and, and Joe goes, he was, he was fed it. No, 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 no. The, the kids can't see me drinking. You know, that mm-hmm. would, but the look in his eye, he really wanted a bud. Mm-hmm. Or a, a Michelobe. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. My guest is John Keysweater, and you're listening to Book Nook. We're talking about Joe Nuxall, and we'll bring you our final segment right after this. You're listening to The Book Nook on WYSO. I'm Vic McCunis. My pleasure to have John Keysweater in studio. We're talking about his book, Joe Nuxhall, The Old Left-Hander and Me, my conversations with Joe Nuxhall about the Reds, baseball, and broadcasting. And uh, at the end of the book, you talk about how he was just about the nicest guy you ever knew. He, he really was. And, and he was just such one of a kind that, that he was— his son Kim said he had like a photographic memory for names. He'd play golf with somebody, and 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 that man's uncle, you know, on a road trip to San Diego. And then the, years later, he'd run into the guy and say, "Well, how's your uncle?" So and name him, you know. Mm-hmm. That he he didn't mind being interrupted at meals to, to sign autographs or to, you know, he thrived off of 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 getting to know and and really enjoyed people. Uh, the other story, and this is, I only heard it later, this is not in the book, but uh, down in Hamilton, the Hamilton Westsiders Little League has done pretty well in the Little League World Series. And and the team, Nux passed in 2007, so this was either in the late 1900s or early 2000s, where they went to uh, Williamsport and played in the World Series. And then they had this big parade and a and big civic event well, for the to to honor the, the team. And there's county commissioners and judges and city council, mayor and all that, and they're all there, and they can't find Nux. They can't find Nux. And they finally look over, and he's sitting over in the stands with the baseball team just talking baseball. <laughs> right. You know, he never thought of himself as anything special or a celebrity. He just thought he was uh, a regular Joe with a um, with an interesting job. John, let's talk about Marge Schott. She's in the book. <laughs> 
Um, yeah, he was Joe was always guarded with me. He didn't uh, let down his guard much. But others have told me that he really didn't like Marge that much. Uh, there was great frustration on Marty and Joe getting their contracts renewed. Um, that that they'd work it through John Allen, who was then the GM, and then she would she would negate it. In fact, at one point, right before they did Marty and Joe night in 1993 to celebrate their 20 years together. Um, actually, Marty went on the flagship station WLW and said, "You know, if we don't have our contract settled by, by, by that date, uh, we're going to walk." And and they, so anyway, but um, and, and Kim told me much much later after his dad passed is that we were always afraid Joe would Dad would say something, <laughs> and you know, and and it would get out, and and that he'd get canned by Marge for for being uh, um, for for his remarks about her. But I also put in a couple of my stories about my dealings with Marge. At one point, back at the the heyday of the Reds, after they won the 1990 World Series, um, USA Cable had announced that they were making like a series of, of made-for-TV movies. One was the Marge shot story. One was about Attila the Hun. And the third was about... Uh, I forget her name, Latorno. She was a teacher in Florida that had the affair with like the fourteen-year-old boy, and so this was announced in January, and we get and we're getting we're getting close to opening day, and so I checked in with USA Cable. I said, "How's this project coming?" They said, "Well, it says, you know, we couldn't figure out a way to make her likable, so we killed the project, <laughs> but they did do four hours on Attila the Hun." <laughs> Uh, so anyway, it was it was uh, it was fun to do, uh, and uh, it includes some of those stories. He was a big supporter of Pete, and then it kind of broke with him when Rose, after denying he had bet on baseball, finally admitted he did. But he did it in a book, and the book was released right when the Hall of Fame class was announced, and it really rubbed people the wrong way that that he would kind of cashed in on on that date of all dates to 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 have his. Uh, his announcement come out. Let's talk about time Nuxy swore on the air. <laughs> so the, this was back in the Al Michaels. And actually, Al Michaels put it in his book. So the, the Reds are playing. It's 71 to 73. And, the, and and on an off day, the Reds go to Indianapolis to play the farm team, the Indianapolis Indians, which was their farm team at the time. And so Joe did a pregame interview after pitching batting practice um, and was interviewing a player. Uh, there at the side of the by the dugout, and as as he starts the interview, some of the some of the players were throwing pebbles at him, and and he stopped the interview abruptly and and told the players in a very profane term <laughs> to stop throwing rocks at him. So then he he's a cassette tape, so he gives it to the clubhouse boy to send it up to the booth, and he has to go shower to get ready to t- broadcast. Well, he didn't warn anybody that that there was this first bit that he stopped and, and redid it. So they backed it up to the very beginning and on the air they have uh, um, the, and they run it. And and uh, that night on TV, Al Shadokati, the big anchorman in Channel 9, talked about the X-rated broadcast of that the Reds and Joe's worried he might lose his job and he's called in the next day and there's Dick Wagner and the PR guy Roger Rule and they said you got to make an apology. So they, they wrote one for him but in jest, the PR guy wrote it and said, well, it wasn't my fault. It was the blankety blank engineer. Uh-huh, right, right. Did, did you actually hear that when you were? <laughs> I, I didn't. I've never heard uh-huh, it. Okay. But but um, um, Marty got a copy of it. Uh-huh, right. And, and years later, when the Reds were coming, getting back on the bus after a game, 
and getting ready to go back to the hotel, Marty had it and played it, and it hit play, and it, it started, you know, and he said that was probably the maddest he ever saw Joe that wow. years later that uh, that Marty had produced this thing and, and uh, played it in, for the current players to hear. A man who had been temperamental early on in, as a player, but he had a pretty good temper at that point and rarely lost it, and uh, you talk about in the book how they actually thought about getting rid of, of Joe Nux Hall. They wanted to bump him off the broadcast. And there was another situation where, where the two of them really got in deep doo-dah over the Ron Pallone incident. The, the Ron Pallone incident. This was in, in 1988 when the Reds were playing the Mets. Pete was the manager. And um, it, it, Ron Pallone was a first-base umpire and, and delayed his call on, uh, on an out or safe call so a Met runner scored from second base, and, and they were head six to five. And Rose went out and got in his face. And when Pallone was making the point with his index finger, poked Pete Rose in the cheek or near the eye. And at that point, Rose shoved him with, with a forearm, gave him a big shove. And, and the crowd went nuts. And Marty and Joe were on the air trying to explain to the people what's going on. And, and in the course of it, uh, Joe said th- things like, "Pallone was the worst umpire, and and he was a scab because he he broke, he, he worked during the union strike of the umpires, um, called him a liar because he thought he had made a call and he didn't, and and Marty had said this was the ugliest crowd we've ever I've ever seen in all my years at Riverfront. Anyway, long story short, Rose got suspended and fined, but then the commissioner Uberoth summoned Marty and Joe to, to New York. Uh, to have the riot at Rick. And so bleary-eyed, they're, at the, they're, they're getting on the airplane at like 6.30 the, the next morning after a night game. And Marty said he looked over at Joe and said, I bet you didn't have fun like this when you worked with Al Michaels. <laughs> so they went up to New York. Giamatti, they said, was very nice and polite. And then Uberoff came in and was a real jerk and, and, and actually threatened their job, threatened to ban them from baseball. This would have been a year before Marty, uh, before Pete was banned by the, by Giamatti, but that was never mentioned. I, I actually broke the, it was like 20, on the 25th anniversary um, of that in, that I broke the story, what I called Marty for an anniversary story, and, and, and that's when he said that, that Uberoth had threatened their jobs, which didn't happen. They, they were allowed to, uh, you know, of course, have their long career, but uh, so that, that's a friend of mine who was an AP writer in Cincinnati, Dan Sewell, had said, you know, why are you writing a Pete Rose book, a Joe Nuxhall book? We know everything about Joe. But I think there's plenty of stories in there that people haven't heard. People, I mean, it stuck in there, as you mentioned, um, when the beer rights changed after the 1970 World Series and Strohs took over from Wiedemann. Uh, Dick Wagner was walking down the hall at Riverfront Stadium and said, you know, should we keep Nuxhall? Because they were thinking about dump. He, he, Wagner, was thinking about dumping Nuxhall before they hired Al Michaels. Uh-huh. And then Al Michaels wasn't the first choice. Uh, as much as we embraced Al and, you know, he had a start here, did his first NFL games while he was with the Reds, did the first Olympics when he, while he was the Reds radio guy. Uh, but they, the first guy they talked to was Harry Callis, who was leaving Houston, went to Philadelphia Phillies, had a long career there, award-winning career. In fact, he got the Frick Award two years after Marty did in 2002. He had been fine. but So there's all these things along the way that, that Marty and Joe might not have been together for those 31 wonderful years had, you know, 
Joe said another bad word on the air and Wagner got rid of him or if, if uh, Al Michaels you know, would have stayed here longer and didn't leave after three years or if they got rid of Joe before Al was hired. And uh, there's just a lot. Of, uh, the bottom line is the Reds fans were really blessed. My guest is John Keyswetter. We're talking about his book, Joe Nuxhall, The Old Left-Hander and Me, my conversations with Joe Nuxhall about the Reds, baseball and broadcasting. You just used the term a long career. You've had a long career as a journalist. Uh, tell us about yourself. How did you become a journalist? What have you been doing all these years? Tell us about the various things you've done, how you got access to guys like this, and what you're doing now. Well, I, I, I grew up in Middletown, Ohio, and uh, early on decided I, I wanted to be a, a newspaper guy and had worked as an intern, summer intern of the old Middletown Journal. I went to OU, studied journalism, and out of Graduation in 75, the only job I could get was a summer internship at the Cincinnati Enquirer back in the summer of 75. And um, it was a 13-week deal. But near the end, uh, I had a deal with the city editor who said, if you don't look for a job somewhere else, I'll see if I can get you on. And then in September, it looked like the Reds were going to go to the World Series, 75. And so I did some local color stories related to fans coming to the to the World Series and in November, uh, somebody left the county government beat, and they hired me. So I parlayed a 13-week summer internship into a 40-year career. Um, the first 10 years, I was a county government reporter, general assignment, uh, assistant city editor, suburban editor, even the features editor. And I was over the features section, and my TV critic quit. And I thought, boy, this sounds like a lot of fun. So the last 30 years, I was TV critic. I would go to Los Angeles with the Tom Hopkins of the of the old Dayton Daily News, uh, P.J. Benarski used to be at the Journal Herald, all came down. We so I, you know, did some celebrity reporting, but always I also did covered sports, sports broadcasting, and that's what I was. You know, I, I tell people that I would go to L.A. twice a year for the Enquirer, but to me the best trip was to go to the to the ballpark and sit and watch Marty and Joe do a do a game. From the from the press box, so that's how I got to meet Joe and Marty, and and uh, I worked forty years for the Enquirer until they eliminated the TV beat, and then I uh, went over to Cincinnati Public Radio WVXU, uh, the NPR affiliate in Cincinnati, and for now seven years I've been covering writing about TV and media for them, and writing for their website and doing some interviews, and uh, having a lot of fun. And. If you read the book, you'll see going back to the uh, old days of uh, the sports pages in the Dayton Daily News uh, when writers like Ritter Collette and Cy Burek were uh, writing for the paper. I know we have listeners out there who remember them. And, of course, Hal McCoy and, uh, and, and, Jim, and Joe always called him Harold. Harold, yes, true. <laughs> and, and, and Jim Ferguson, who later became, became the Reds' uh, the Reds PR guy, but a funny story, looking through the research, one I didn't know was in 1966, Joe's last year as a pitcher, the Republicans down in Hamilton were floating the idea of Joe Nuxall should retire and run for Butler County Sheriff. Mm, right. <laughs> and and so I found a, a story by Jim Ferguson of the Date Daily News saying, with Joe explaining that, yeah, that, that's true. He confirmed it, but he said, you know, I got no interest in it. says, says, what do I know about being sheriff? I'm a pitcher. <laughs> right. Although if he would have run for sheriff, he would have probably had the you know job for the rest of his life, long, longer than as a broadcaster. Probably. And segueing back to radio, uh, Gary Burbank had a good time making fun of Mark Schott. Uh, yes, he did. And, and even after he pass, she passed, 
they would have somebody uh, mimic her voice and call in from the taking a smoke break outside the pearly gates. And uh, I, the one that made me drive off the road was this fake Marge had called in and wanting to buy wanting a new stadium because they were tearing down Riverfront and having a separate football stadium, baseball stadium. And uh, then Gary said, well, how are you going to pay for it? And the fake Marge goes, well, I've been saving my Raleigh coupons. <laughs> <laughs> and uh, speaking of call-ins, uh, these guys had their own call-ins, which they finally had to curtail. This was the, the call-in show that they would do uh, in, in, the, uh, in rain delays. And, um, but, uh, I mean, there was one time that uh, uh, Jose Rijo called in to complain that there was a company, I think at Urbana, that did a Mumford potato chips, uh-huh, and, yeah. and for a year or two did Marty and Joe potato chips, and and so Riho calls in on a on a rain delay saying that uh, you know these nasty greasy Marty and Joe potato <laughs> chips, and, and Marty says, well nobody's forcing you to eat them, and uh, Adam Dunn called in one time, uh, John Franco called in one time, and and uh, said began talking to Joe and said, it looks like you, you've been eating too many of those bananas from the Kroger commercials. You've been putting on a little bit of weight and compared him to a uh, dirigible. <laughs> and, uh, and I think Joe, blimp was the term. Blimp, yeah. yeah. Finally, <laughs> finally uh, Joe figured out who it was. But the, 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 those were fun times, too, that, that after, long after Joe passed, that, uh, that uh, a couple of calls got past the screener um, with a couple of anatomical references, and and so the banana phone is now history. Mm. Well, it's quite a book, and if you read it, uh, you can find out who Joe would pick on his All Reds team, uh, who his who his favorite players would be at each position, and and some of those were pretty hard to pick. Uh, and, well, you think about it. I mean, just shortstop. You had had he Roy McMillan was the All Star in the fifties, and then Leo Cardenas in the sixties. And then David Concepcion in the '70s, and by the '90s it was Barry Larkin, and and so yeah, I did sit him down, and and did a chapter with that, and at the same time I'd ask Marty those same questions, so it's kind of back and forth. But it were first base, you had Kozuski, and Tony Perez, and Lee May, and Sean Casey. Probably is not in that class, but Sean Casey was like a son to to Joe, so uh-huh. it, it was kind of tough to get him pin him down on. Uh, although he did tell me that that. Of the, all the pitchers he saw, including Randy Johnson and everybody else, that when he was on, that Jim Maloney was hell on wheels. Mm. That, that was the best pitcher he'd seen. Pete Rose, do you think he should be in the Hall of Fame or not? I think that he's going to get in the Hall of Fame, but I think it's going to be, unfortunately, after his passing. Mm-hmm. I, I mean, but then again, Shoeless Joe is still not in. Um, I mean, I his his Pete's accomplishments on the field and all the hits and his longevity is certainly needs to be um, recognized. But on the other hand, you know, he broke the cardinal rule that it was posted above the door and it still is at, at all the clubhouses. So um, I think it could happen, but I think it's going to be after the fact. I think he's got a, a gambling problem. I, I think I think he's addicted. He lives in Las Vegas, doesn't he? He lives in Vegas, and and they're doing this roast for him. And where they're doing it, they're doing it at the Hollywood Casino, or the or the what whatever the casino is in Cincinnati. But yeah, I mean, yeah, he's never been able to. I I, I believe that that he's got has a problem, and and he never, um, and that's going to be the. Although now with baseball 
and all the the close relationship of the different gambling sites, who knows? But I, I still don't think it's going to happen in his lifetime. Well, John, it's really been a pleasure talking to you about your book. Thanks for coming all the way out to see us. Well, I thank you for the time. I love tell. I mean, the, the stories that Joe told were great. They're they're surefire. They're and it's wonderful to be able to tell him again and, and to keep his stories and his name alive after all these years. And if listeners are looking for the book, where, where is it available? I have a website called TV Keys, T-V-K-I-E-S-E. Uh, I'm a one-man operation, so I uh, do my own fulfillment. And, and it's also at the Reds Hall of Fame if you're going down to a Reds game and uh, Joseph Beth Bookstore in in the Rookwood Commons area of Cincinnati. Thanks again. And, and, and Amazon. It's on Amazon. Gotcha. My guest has been John Keysweater. The book is Joe Nuxhall, The Old Left-Hander and Me, My Conversations with Joe Nuxhall about the Reds, baseball, and broadcasting. And, John, I'm going to make a prediction. Your Reds are going to start playing better. Because <laughs> they couldn't play any worse, right? No, no, that, that just historically worse. <laughs> historically worse. Okay. For the book, Nook, I'm Vic McCunis. <laughs>